0: We are in Isaiah 10. We made it halfway through that chapter last week. I guess the proper place to start is to explain the way that Old Testament prophets view the future because we're going to bump into it here again tonight. Old Testament prophets oftentimes prophesy things that are going to happen almost immediately within the next several years to the next century, but then mixed in with the prophecy of what's about to happen, they'll mix in elements that are distant future. We've already seen that in the book of Isaiah when he said things like, unto us a child is born and a son is given, okay, well that actually happened. That occurred in time in history and it occurred a few hundred years after Isaiah said it. But then Isaiah also said, and the government will be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. Well, that hasn't exactly occurred yet. And yet Isaiah saw it as one big prophecy. It was part and parcel of the same prophetic vision. So we have to recognize that sometimes prophets speak in a single prophecy about things that are about to occur and things that will occur in time eventually or even in the last days. Isaiah is going to do that tonight. As he continues in chapter 10, we're still talking about Assyria and the destruction of Assyria. You may recall last week that the end of what we read at verse 18 says that God will destroy the glory of the forest of the king of the Assyrians and his fruitful garden, both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. And then we went over and looked at Isaiah 37 where we saw that an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 people in a single night because God was keeping his word that he was going to protect Jerusalem. So God having promised that he was going to protect Jerusalem, the second half of chapter 10 returns to that topic and is going to say with a rather astounding amount of specificity exactly what the Assyrian army is going to do in terms of their advance through the northern tribes and that they are going to get All the way to within two miles. The city of Nob is within two miles of Jerusalem. They could see Jerusalem. It was practically a stone's throw away. And yet God wouldn't let them get any further than that. Through this chapter you're going to see that they made their way through the cities of Israel, the northern kingdom. And with each city they went through, they were getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Finally they get to Nob. And at that point, they shake their fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. But God doesn't let them take Jerusalem. So this is a theme that we've already seen. This is a story that we already know. And now it is going to be recited by Isaiah from a slightly different angle, starting at verse 20. Now it will come about in that day. What day is he talking about? The day when God will destroy the glory of the forest and the fruitful garden and the soul and the body of the Assyrians. It will come about in that day that a remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them. That would be the king of Assyria. But they will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so what is Isaiah saying there? He's talking about in the near future, God is going to destroy Assyria, and there's going to be a remnant of the Israelites who are going to return to what used to be their homeland. But when they get there, they find that it's already occupied they intermarry with some of the people that are occupying there, and that people group becomes known as the Samaritans. That's why Samaritans are so widely hated by the Jews, because the Samaritans were half-breeds. So that's why Jesus would use Samaritans as sort of an epithet, and say he's as bad as a tax collector or a Samaritan, but it's also why Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan, because His disciples wouldn't be able to think of anybody less likely to help a Jew than a Samaritan. So there was that immediate return, but then there was a scattering out of Assyria of the majority of those tribes, which, as I've said, is why we refer to them still as the Lost Tribes. You can look back at their history and you can trace their early wanderings and you get some sense of where they probably have settled. But still, there is a remnant of Israel, those of the house of Jacob, who have escaped and they'll never again rely on the one who struck them, but they will rely truly on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. It's kind of hard to say that that has actually been accomplished where some significant portion of the northern tribes has returned and trusted God in a true sense. Verse 21 says, The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return, and a destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. Okay, so we don't have a real historic point that we can look at, that we can point at, that we can say, okay, that's the moment when that was accomplished. And yet we know that God has promised it. By the way, little theological bonus for you. If you understand what Isaiah has said here, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, though your people, O Israel, are like the sand of the sea, Only a remnant within Israel will return. If you go to Romans 9, well, let's do that. Turn over to Romans 9 for just a moment. Because this is a phrase that has been argued about, bandied about, misinterpreted so many different ways. At the beginning of chapter 9 of the book of Romans... Paul tells you who he's talking about, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons. And the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. That verse is very exacting. They're not all Israel that are part of Israel. They're not all Israel that are descended from Israel. They're not all Israel that are of Israel, the King James rendering of it. It's real obvious when you put it in the context of what Isaiah has already said. And Paul already knows this theology, the theology that says there is a remnant inside Israel, and though your people, O Israel, are like the sand of the sea, only the remnant within them will return. They're not all Israel who are of Israel. See how obvious that is? Mm -hmm. So I don't understand the amount of theological wrangling about that verse. Paul is clearly saying that there is Israel generally, and there is the remnant within Israel. And then he continues in chapter 9 of Romans to prove that by showing that God chose even from the two sons of Abraham, and even from two twins in a womb, that he picked and chose the direction that the seed would go through the generations of Israel. So, looking at Isaiah, understanding Isaiah creates the biblical context to be able to understand Romans 9 and not get confused by it. What Romans 9 clearly does not say, especially now that we know the context, what it clearly does not say is, Now some Gentiles who believe in Christ have become Israel because they're not all Israel who are of Israel and Gentiles are not of Israel but they now have become spiritual Israel and so that's what Paul was getting at. That's nothing like what Paul was getting at. In fact, all of his examples are God picking from Israelites within Israel. So clearly what he is saying is the same thing that Isaiah here has said. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, that's the northern tribe, Israel, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. So God, in his righteousness, is going to destroy them out of their land, take them into captivity For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, who would those people be? The people who dwell in Zion would be the Judahites, the southern tribe. O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way that Egypt did. For in a very little while, or that can be read as very quickly, in a little while my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed toward their destruction. And the Lord of hosts, will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago. That's the story of Midian and how God fought for Midian and how by the 300 they conquered the Midianites because God himself caused confusion within the camp until the Midianites were all killing each other. God says I did that and the way I'm going to protect you is going to be along the same lines just like I did at the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up just like he did in Egypt. The same God that delivered you out of Egypt the same God that parted the Red Sea the same God that delivered you through Midian is the same God who promises you he's going to deliver you from the hand of the Assyrian. So it will be in that day that his burden will be removed from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of fatness, because he's so full of himself, because he's satiated. He has come against, now what he's going to do is name several cities that are among the northern tribes as Assyria worked its way down toward Jerusalem. He has come against Aeth. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he deposited his baggage. They have gone through the pass, saying, Geba will be our lodging place. Ramah is terrified, and Gibeah of Saul has fled away. Cry aloud with your voice, O daughter of Galim. Pay attention, Leisha and wretched Anathoth. Madmanah. Has fled. The inhabitants of Gabim have sought refuge. Yet today, he will stop, he will halt at Nob. And as I told you, that's just two miles north of Jerusalem. That's how close the armies are gonna get. And Isaiah tells the inhabitants of Jerusalem in advance the armies are gonna get really close, and they're gonna conquer all the northern cities. And you're going to hear stories about all the cities that are falling before the Assyrians. It will make you fearful. It will make you afraid for your own lives. But trust God. Because God himself is going to fight for you. He's going to allow that army to advance until it's at your very doorstep. But he's not going to get in. Here's how God says it. Yet he will halt at Nob. He shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion. The hill of Jerusalem, and behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. And those also who were tall in stature will be cut down. And those who are lofty will be abased. And he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Lebanon was the most mighty of forests, And so he likened the army of the Assyrians to these very tall and very noble and very statuesque people who looked like like a whole forest of Lebanon was coming to attack. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to cut it down. I'm going to be the implement that takes it down. And that's why he did what we've already read last week, sent an angel and killed 185,000 of them. Causing the king of Assyria to turn tail and run back to Nineveh where he came from, exactly like God said he was going to do. Okay, now, that whole prophecy, as Isaiah said it, was going to come to its fruition in just a few years, a relatively short amount of time. But chapter 11, verse 1, starts with the word, then... So if we're reading this sequentially, what we see is that first there was, in fact, the fall of Assyria. And that Assyria was ultimately conquered by Babylon. Babylon's conquered by Medo-Persia. Then the Greeks come along, then the Roman Empire. So years have gone by. Kingdoms have risen and fallen. And years ago, the Assyrians fell. But then... A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. You should know that phrase. It's one of the more common phrases in the book of Isaiah. But really, really vitally important. Because in that short phrase, what Isaiah just did was reaffirm the Davidic covenant. He said there's going to be a root that comes from the very stem, the very lineage of Jesse. Not from David. David's father is Jesse. And so Jesse gave birth to David. Well, he sired David. For the women in the room, I wanted to be exacting about that. But he sired David, but he also sired the Christ to come because it was in the lineage of Jesse that the Messiah comes. Just to make it more clear, he says, it's a branch from his roots, and he will Bear fruit. Okay, so let's think about sequence for a moment. So, okay, Judah, don't be afraid. The Assyrians are going to take the northern tribes. That actually happened. They're going to get all the way to your doorstep, all the way to Nob, but they're not going to get in. They're not going to conquer Jerusalem. I'm going to kill 185,000 in one night. I'm going to drive them away from your door. Okay, so that part happened historically. The Assyrians were defeated and then ultimately defeated by the Babylonians. Okay, so that happened. And then after that happened, it's just so interesting that God knows the sequence of events. After that happens, then Messiah is going to come. Well, if you look back at the calendar of history, that's the exact order that these things fell out in. Isn't that lucky? I mean, God got so fortunate that that worked that way. A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. That is also interesting language, that a branch from his root bears fruit, because it looks like from the period of the Babylonian captivity until Jesus comes onto the planet, there are no more kings in Judah. So for all intents and purposes, it looks like the Davidic covenant's not gonna happen. And it looks like the lineage of David has ended. And it looks like that root is dried up. And that it's not bearing fruit anymore. But when Messiah comes, who is identified not only by lineage as the son of David, but the people on Palm Sunday who throw their branches and clothing into the street, they cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. He's publicly recognized and proclaimed as being the lineage of David. So once again, that Davidic root has sprung a branch and it bore fruit. It came alive. It looked like the lineage of David had died off. But then the lineage of David bears fruit. It's just beautiful language. Mm-hmm. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. If you would, Tom, look up Revelation 1-4. Micah, look up Revelation 3-1. Leon, Revelation 4-5. Steve, Revelation 5-6. Jeff, nothing. No, nothing for you. Yeah, I, I can tell you're disappointed. Yeah. Well, all right, if you're going to be that way, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and we'll get to you in a minute. (laughs) There is this phrase that is used four times in the book of Revelation, and we're going to read it out so that we can hear it said over and over again. It is a reference to the seven spirits of God, specifically seven. You know that the number seven is the number of completion. But the seven spirits of God are before the throne of God. And here in Isaiah, we read that the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. This branch that rises up from Jesse, this Messiah. And then he lists seven characteristic spirits that Messiah is going to have. And the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding And the spirit of counsel, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. And the spirit of strength, and the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the reverence, in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so there are actually seven there. What have you got, Tom? Revelation 1-4 makes this reference. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven spirits that are before his throne. Revelation 3, 1, Micah. The angel of the church in Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that, I, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now that's interesting because that's Jesus speaking, and he refers to himself as he that has the seven spirits of God. Here in Isaiah, he says he will have the seven spirits of God. Jesus stands up and confirms it. I do have those seven spirits. Revelation 4, 5, Leon And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And then Revelation 5, 6. A lot of different pictures there. A lot of different pictures there. Seven burning lamps that are the seven spirits of God. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the reference to the seven spirits of God throughout the book of Revelation, it's always a Christological thing. It's always something that Christ has. Christ is the ultimate demonstration of the seven spirits of God. And those spirits are the spirit of the Lord, which, by the way, capital L-O-R-D, yet again, Yahweh. It is the very spirit of Yahweh, which is one of the reasons again that that Isaiah could predict his name will be called the Mighty Father. And so he has that very spirit of Yahweh. He has the spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, and of strength, and the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So that's Seven spirits right there. So Isaiah is kind of giving us some sense of what the seven spirits of God are and he assigns them specifically to the Messiah. This is what the Messiah is going to be like. These are the characteristics. Not only is the spirit of Yahweh going to be on him so that he is the embodiment, the very icon, the very demonstration of God in flesh, but that he also is going to be able to satisfy the Greeks who want to hear wisdom because he is the very embodiment of wisdom and understanding, understanding the things that we humans don't begin to understand, understanding heavenly things and eternal things, things that we wouldn't know unless he himself told us about them. And a spirit of counsel, as I said, that's why he's called The counselor, that's one of the names he gets. In other words, not only does he know what it's like to be flesh and blood because he took on flesh and blood so that he could be like his brethren, but then he also knows how to counsel us, how to succor us when we're going through our most difficult periods because he himself knows what it is to suffer the difficulties of this life. And strength. When you're going through the difficulties of life, have you ever had anybody when you're when you're just going through a terrible time? You're just going through something just awful, and uh, people will come by and say something to you that you know they mean well, but they say, "Well, all things work together," you know, or something. And you just oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to counsel people, but it's another to be able to strengthen people. It's another thing to come alongside and lift their burden with them. Well, that's one of the things that he's going to have, that omnipotent power of God behind him. So not only can he succor you through your times of difficulty, but he can strengthen you to get through those times of difficulty. He knows how much is too much. And the spirit of knowledge, which is very much like the spirit of understanding, he has comprehension that is exhaustive. He knows all the stuff. He knows all the facts and he knows how everything works and he knows what everything's name is and there's a place for everything and everything's in its place and he put it in that place. So he has complete knowledge and then on top of that, the actual fear of the Lord. Now, if one of the spirits of God that rests on the Messiah is the actual reverential fear of God, shouldn't that be something we're paying more attention to? I mean, if the Messiah himself had that kind of reverence for God, I would think then it is incumbent on us to really pay attention to those passages that instruct us that we should walk in the fear of the Lord. That is one of the ways that we are being conformed into the image of Christ. Then it is said about him, He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Carol, do me a favor. Look up John 2.25 for a moment. Let's hear Jesus say the same thing. Well, let's hear John describe that Jesus does not judge people based on what he sees or what he hears about people. I know I sprang that on you suddenly. And Jeff is still waiting in the bullpen. So. <laughs> well, he's had more time. While she's doing that, April, if you would, because we're getting everybody in on this. Look up Ephesians 6.14, and we'll get right to you. John 2.25. This is, of course, within the context of Isaiah saying that he's going to decide with fairness because he's not going to judge by what his eye sees. And he's not going to make a decision by what his ears hear. How can he do it without looking at people and without listening to people? How can he then rightly judge those people? Well, here's the answer. John 2.25. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Why didn't he have to look at people or listen to people in order to judge them? Because John tells us Jesus on his part didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in every man. He knew every man, so he could judge righteously without even watching or listening to them. He knew what they were about, and he was able to judge them. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness as part of that judgment, he didn't need anybody to say anything good or bad about them concerning any man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so Isaiah says that this is going to be one of the characteristics of this Messiah to come, that he doesn't need to hear he doesn't need to listen he doesn't need to judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked Paul picks that up in 2 Thessalonians and says that that's exactly what he's going to do. That's how he's going to destroy the final Antichrist figure. The way he's going to destroy the devil ultimately is that he's going to destroy them with the breath of his lips. Read that for us, Jeff. No, I'm going to read the verses for Paul around it right there. Okie dokie, fine. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And that lawless one will be revealed when the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved. That deceiver, how is he destroyed ultimately? That man of lawlessness, how is he destroyed? When Christ returns, it's the breath of his mouth And Paul didn't just make that up. That wasn't something that he was just saying colorfully. Like, oh, here, this will be a nice phrase that will incite the people. He, He pulled it right out of Isaiah, that one of the things that Messiah is going to do is that with the breath of his mouth, he's going to slay the wicked. And by the way, that word wicked there can be translated the wicked generally or the wicked one. He's going to slay the wicked by the breath of his mouth. He's going to strike the earth with a rod, that rod of iron that he's going to rule with. Either you are going to bow the knee most willingly to him and recognize him as Lord and Savior, or he's going to use that rod of iron to make sure you bow the knee and to conquer the kings of the earth and to bring the nations low. Either way, you're getting on your knees. And if he has to do it with a rod of iron, he's perfectly willing to. He's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness will be the belt about his waist. Okay, that's language that Paul also obviously knows because he picks it up and cites it in Ephesians 6.14 which April in her very loud and boisterous voice is now going to read for us. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So he picks up that same kind of idea of the clothing, that you're going to wear the, the protective clothing of righteousness, and of faith, and of peace. And you're going to get that From your Savior, from your Messiah, whose own righteousness is going to be like a belt around his loins. And faithfulness is going to be the belt about his waist. So faithfulness and righteousness comes from him, and then Paul picks that up and instructs us. Now you also put on that same armor. That's the only way you're going to stand against the wiles of the devil if you put on the armor that God himself has provided for you through your Savior, through the Messiah. So again, Paul did not just make that up like colorful language. He was drawing directly from what the prophets had already predicted about Messiah. Now, up until that point in Isaiah 11, we could say, Okay, that happened, that sequentially happened, that historically happened. The Messiah did come to the planet. A stem of Jesse actually did take root and he did bear fruit, that actually did happen. He actually does have the seven spirits of God and he delights in the fear of the Lord and he made decisions based on knowing all men. We saw that, John said it to us, so we know that that was accomplished we see Paul talking about how we're to gird ourselves the same way that he was girded. So up until verse 6, we can say, okay, this is this is his first incarnation. This all actually happened, and there's the ongoing effect of that incarnation as Christianity for the last 2,000 years has continued to try to reflect the qualities of the spirit of God that were within Christ and we clothe ourselves the same way and we behave ourselves as best we can toward that high calling of the righteousness that we were called to and then verse 6 just slams you in the side of the head and says and the wolf will lie down with the lamb wait that hasn't happened and the leopard will lie down with the kid that means the young goat Obviously, a young goat is prey for a leopard. Obviously, a young goat is lunch. And the wolf is going to dwell with the lamb. Wolves don't dwell with lambs. Lambs are defenseless. Wolves, big teeth. They devour lambs. And every shepherd knows that. Every shepherd carries a staff in order to defend sheep against dogs and wolves. And yet... Here's the prediction that the wolf, which is the natural enemy of the lamb, is going to dwell with the lamb and a leopard's just going to lie down with a kid, not going to devour him, not going to eat him. Now, you can go online right now and you can find commentaries galore that will try to explain this as a present reality. And usually what they'll do is they will allegorize this language and say that what this is talking about is human beings who are natural enemies. The kind of human beings who used to devour other kinds of enemies or other kinds of humans like the rich and powerful that used to devour the poor. And so it says here that through Christ they're all gonna be in Christ both rich and poor and therefore they're gonna lie down together and so within the church you see that actually the the wolf and the lamb actually do abide together. Of course, Isaiah says nothing like that because now the language becomes even more specific and more difficult to allegorize. After the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf, the young calf, and the young lion and the fatling all together and a little boy will lead them. Okay, so if we're talking about the church here and if we're talking about natural enemies within the church, who find fellowship and brotherhood within the church, then you've got to say that the church is being led by a little boy. See the problem? Clearly, Isaiah is creating a scenario that is out in the future somewhere. And the ability of even animals to be peaceful with each other is indicative of Isaiah's sort of crowning phrase through this whole thing which is going to be that no one's going to hurt or harm in my holy mountain. And then Isaiah is going to say essentially when that's going to happen. So let's keep reading. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leper will lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze together. Bears don't graze generally. <laughs> But cows and bears are going to graze together. And their young are going to lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. Allegorize that one in a church context for me. That's a really tough one. Instead, I believe that what Isaiah meant by these words he chose to use, because he's used so many of them now, he's named so many animals, animals that are natural enemies with each other, who are ultimately going to lay down together, who are going to be in pasture together, who are going to graze together. Instead of eating each other, they're going to be grazing, eating the grass together. And I think when he says something like, the lion is going to eat straw like the ox, what he means by that is that the lion is going to eat straw like the ox. And why do I think he means that? Because that's what he said! Amen. And if that's what he said, that's what he meant. Now, if he had just used any one of those phrases individually and just threw it in in the midst of some other allegorical description of some state of being within Jerusalem, then maybe I could say, okay, he's talking figuratively about people who are natural enemies getting along with each other. But he's gone to pains here. He's named several different animals. He's named several different natural enemies. And then he has even taken the character of bears and lions and said that those characteristics, the nature of those animals is going to be altered. It's going to be changed. No longer are they going to be carnivores. They're actually going to graze like oxen. And then verse 8, and a nursing child, what's a nursing child? We're talking about a baby here. Talking about an infant. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The NASB says cobra. The King James, I think, is asp. The idea is a poisonous snake. And the mom is going to be fine with that. He can go there because nothing bad is going to happen to him. And the weaned child, when are children weaned? Year and a half, two years, something in there. So we're still talking about infant children. A wean child will put his hand into the viper's den. Why will he do that? Because he has no fear. Nothing's going to hurt him. Now again, just to overstress this point, it's practically impossible to allegorize all of those things in a consistent way that makes any sense. The only way to read it is to understand what I said at the beginning, that sometimes prophets prophesy in huge sweeps of time and in this prophecy Isaiah started with something that was going to occur pretty soon Assyria is going to be destroyed and Assyria is not going to attack Jerusalem that that happened right there within Isaiah's lifetime and so that happened pretty quickly but then after that then Messiah is going to come and then these are the characteristics of Messiah Then, after that, this kind of peace is going to break out. So you and I right now are living between the coming of the Messiah and the ultimate peace breaking out. We're between those two events, which means that Old Testament Isaiah type prophecy is still waiting to be fulfilled. And don't forget, never forget, tattoo it to your brain. Make sure you remember that the Bible tells us in the New Testament that in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. They're yes through him, and they're verily, verily, it will be so through him. Okay, well, here's a promise of God. Is this going to happen? Yes, it's definitely going to happen. How? Well, first the Messiah had to come. The root of Jesse had to come. And then once he's here, through him, everything else God said is yes and amen. And so he has to come first. And then sequentially, all this can happen. Hasn't happened yet. But your only two options at this moment are to say, well, God gave up on that. He doesn't really mean it. It's not going to happen. Allegorize, allegorize, allegorize. So you either have to allegorize it away so that the words on the page don't mean what they say. Or you have to say, that was God's plan initially, but Israel messed up. And God apparently didn't know that Israel was going to mess up. But they messed up so badly, they killed their own Messiah. And for that reason, God divorced them permanently. And so these promises don't count anymore. So you're essentially saying when God makes promises, he reneges on his promises and says, well, never mind, I didn't know you were going to be like that. That's a scary thought if that's the god you're serving then what then you have no hope whatsoever because as soon as god figures out you're really like this he's going to give up on you so that's not an option the third option the only option that makes any sense and allows the bible to say what it says is to say the Bible says what it says, it means what it says, that this is going to happen, it's going to happen at some point in the future, it hasn't happened yet, but it absolutely has to happen, because it is the very word of God, and it has the sure and secure seal of Christ coming, and in him all the promises of God are yes and are amen, therefore it's got to happen, or the Bible's not true, I began by saying there's two options, those are the two options, it's either going to happen, or the Bible's not true, And since the Bible has already demonstrated and since Isaiah's prophecies have already demonstrated the many, many things that God already got right in history, we already have evidence that God is going to keep everything he wrote in Isaiah because he's been doing it consistently. All you got to do is back up to the root of Jesse coming. Did that happen? Yeah. Well, then what about this that's in the same chapter? Just a few verses later, is that going to happen? Yeah, it has to. And it's proven by the fact that the root of Jesse did come. That a child was born. That a son was given. The very fact that that happened demonstrates, proves, that all the rest of it is going to occur. Have I driven that home enough yet? I just want to tattoo that to your brain. Okay, so why, why is there going to be all these results? The nursing child playing by the hole of a cobra and a wean child putting his hand onto a viper's den. Why is a wolf going to lay down with a lamb and a leopard with a kid? Why a calf and a young lion and a little boy leading them? Why is a cow and a bear going to be grazing and lions themselves eat straw like an ox? Why is that going to occur that way? Because verse 9, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What's God's holy mountain in this context? Jerusalem. That's what this is all about. It's all about Jerusalem. It starts with, Assyria is not going to come against Jerusalem. It starts with, I will protect Jerusalem. It moves from there to Messiah is going to come and he's going to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then, nothing's going to hurt or harm in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God. Has that happened yet? No. The earth, chock full of the knowledge of God. No, it hasn't happened yet. But we're told it's going to happen. We're told in the new covenant that no man is going to have to teach his neighbor or say know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Mm. Well, that's a new covenant promise cited in Jeremiah 31, repeated in Hebrews 8, the longest extant verbatim quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament. This was very, very important to the Jewish mind, to the early church, the realization that at some point the whole earth was going to be full of the righteousness, the glory, the knowledge of God. And why? Because God promised it. Now, If he promised it and we believe it's going to happen, why do we have any problem with the notion that once the glory of God covers the earth and is primarily stationed on the holy mountain, that even animals are going to change their nature? I mean, human beings are going to change their nature. Right now, they're all sinful and depraved. And at some point, the knowledge of God is going to sweep over the world. Well, if human beings are going to be that changed, well, then I can see animals being that changed. doesn't seem that difficult to me, especially if you're talking about a really omnipotent God. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. What is it, two-thirds of the planet right now is water? Okay, well, he uses that... Image that likeness in order to say that's what the knowledge of God is going to be like it's just going to flood the earth then there's that word again verse 10 then then it will come about in that day what in that day when there's peace in Jerusalem and the knowledge of God is sweeping over the whole earth in that day it will come about that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. The nations are going to resort to Christ. When Christ sets up his kingdom where he's ruling from Jerusalem, the Gentile nations are required, according to Zechariah, to keep the Feast of Booths every year. And if they don't, plagues come down on them. They're going to all, the Gentile nations are going to all flow to the Messiah, the root of Jesse, They're not doing that now. They're actively rebelling against the root of Jesse right now. But at some point, they're all going to resort to him. When? When he comes back with the rod of iron and he slays evil with the breath of his mouth. When he sets up his kingdom and he comes to rule and to dominate. That's when the animals are all going to be at peace and that's when... Every nation is going to resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. And there's that promise of a glorious future for Israel yet again and a glorious future for Jerusalem. And that's why when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you read about the new Jerusalem wherein dwells righteousness. The Bible's telling one story all the way through. And I hope you saw tonight that the language that New Testament writers use is not novel. It's not anything they've made up. The more you know about Old Testament prophecy, the more you know about the Old Testament scriptures, the more familiar New Testament language becomes to you. The more you understand that that was the framework from which the New Testament writers were writing they had the knowledge of their scripture, and that was the, the roadmap to everything they believed and the theology that grew out of it. So if you're just spending time in the New Testament, you're getting a really truncated sense of Christianity, because Christianity just sweeps through the centuries and through the entirety of the history of human beings, and we are not at the culmination of it yet, despite the people who might say, well, the church, once God got to the church, you know, that's the know-all and end-all. That's the apple of his eye. He he was trying to get to the church, and he's there now. It's not what the Bible says. This Sunday, we're going to start talking about the future for the church. The church has a definite plan and a definite place in the plan of God, but it's not the church that brings about Lions and bears becoming herbivores. It's not the church that does that. It is God who does that for the purpose of the glorification and splendor and wonderful future of Jerusalem. And that's not our business. That's his doing. Or the Bible lied. Those are your only two choices. So know what the Bible says. Stand toe to toe with what the Bible says. And then accept it or reject it based on what it actually says. And if you can accept it, that is a tremendous blessing from God who gave you that spirit, that understanding of wisdom and knowledge. Understand? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, well, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye.